Uh, what we have to cover it, so let's ask about it. What's the relationship that you had with Michael Jackson? Uh, had or have? I mean, it's kind had of, both. you know, whatever. Uh, let's go with had. To listen, have. You know, no, he's just he's a good friend of mine, and he still is. On May twenty seventh, two thousand four, nearly a year before the trial began, actor and Jackson friend Macaulay Culkin appeared on Larry King Live to promote his excellent comedy film. Saved. I mean, everything that's going on, I mean, it's unfortunate. It's an unfortunate situation for, for everyone involved. And Culkin explained that he first met Jackson very briefly when he was a child backstage after he performed The Nutcracker at Lincoln Center. He told Larry King that Jackson later called him out of the blue after Culkin's appearance in the movie Home Alone to invite the boy to Neverland. And soon, Jackson developed a relationship with Culkin and his entire family. I mean, he was, you know, a family friend. What happened at the house? That's what all these things it's, are You know, that's, that's what's about. so weird, you know. What did happen? Nothing happened, you know. Nothing. I mean, nothing, really. I mean, we played video games, you know. We, we you know, played Sleep it in some amusement park. Well, the thing is, the thing is with that whole thing is that, you know, they go, oh, you slept in the same bedroom as him. It's like, I don't think you understand. Michael Jackson's bedroom is two stories. <laughs> and it has, like, like, three bathrooms and this and that. So when I slept in his bedroom, yeah, but you have to understand the whole scenario. And the thing is with Michael is that he's not very good at explaining himself, and he never really has been, because he's not a very social person. I mean, he's, you're talking about someone who's been sheltered and sheltering himself also for the last, like, 30 years, or you know. And so he's not very good at communicating to people and not very good at conveying what he's actually trying to say to you. And so when he says something like that, you know, people, you know, he doesn't quite understand why people react the way that they do. A moment later, Culkin weighed in on the accusations of both the Arvizos and of the Chandler family a decade before. You think it's a bad rap? Um, you know, I think so, yeah. I mean, this, you know, I mean, listen, like, look what happened on the first time, the first time this happened to him. You know, if someone had done something like that to my kid, I would, you know, I wouldn't just settle for some money. You know, I'd make sure the guy was in jail, you know, and I, it just really sh goes to show, I mean, as soon as, you know, they got the money and they ran, I mean, that's really what happened the first time. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. From Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio, this is Telephone Stories. Episode 12, A Tale of Two Conspiracies.
Hey, Bubba, what's up, man? Hey, where are you? I feel like you've been traveling for like three months. Yeah, man, it's been a it's been a kind of a great summer, actually. Um, so, you know, we went to Spain and then we went to Yosemite and um, we went camping in Yosemite, which was amazing with the kids and another family um, that we have known for a long time and their kids. And now um, Amy and the kids and I are in Denver visiting her brother. They live out here and we try to get out here every year. So it's great because they have this little basement where Will and I kind of camp out on the floor and. And it's, you know, so shout out to Chris and Kelsey, because they're awesome. We've been out here for a week. We come back tomorrow. Oh, wow. That's great that you're enjoying it. Staying with family for a long period of time can be a little daunting. Yeah. What do they say? Uh, companies like fish, it goes bad in three days. So, so yeah, luckily, yeah, exactly. you know, they can stay in the stench. So it's really sweet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So um, I was going over the, you know, our notes and stuff um, since I've been here. And since I've got you on the phone, I wanted to ask you, um, when did the um, defense start its case officially? So the defense officially started their case on uh, May 5th, 2005. Okay. All right. So um, so I've got a major spoiler question here regarding the defense case. Um, as someone who like didn't follow the trial that closely, did Michael Jackson ever actually testify in court? You know, I honestly couldn't even remember because I didn't follow the trial that closely. Um, but I, I asked that question to Thomas Mesereau. Michael wanted to testify. Because if you look at the Bashir documentary, you know, it shows Michael Jackson as a child. It shows him growing up. It shows his wonderful music and dance and choreography. It humanizes him. It shows them being led down the primrose path by Bashir. And if you combine that documentary with the outtakes, you see how he was manipulated and used. And, you know, the way the documentary humanized him and the way he explained that he would slit his wrist before he would ever hurt a child and that nothing sexual happened. And he says he settled a 94 case so he wouldn't have to put his family through an OJ-type situation. He explained that you know, his approach to children around the world, he explained that he was hoping to have an uh, international day honoring the world's children. You know, he explained himself very, very well in a very compelling way. He explained Neverland. He explained his life. He saw what kind of a person he was. He saw how he's man he can be manipulated and taken advantage of. Prosecutor Ron Zonin disagrees. His lawyers didn't want me cross-examining him. And you don't have the capability as a prosecutor to force no. that? No, that's the Fifth Amendment. He has the privilege against self-incrimination. So he doesn't have to. He's the one witness we can't compel to testify. And that's common in every case? Across America. Sometimes they do want to take the witness stand. But he didn't. I mean, Mesro didn't want me cross-examining him. And I understand that. Uh, but I also under... Because he's... He is a flawed human being, and he doesn't take um, he doesn't take that kind of uh, abuse easily. Me leaning into him and firing questions at him for hours at a time. He's not the type of person who would wear well under that. Jackson attorney Thomas Mesereau. And you know, I find it disingenuous that Zona would say maybe they were afraid he couldn't withstand cross-examination because Zona knows exactly why we didn't put him on. There was no reason to. He had already testified in a very compelling manner, 
and denied virtually all the allegations. Now, as a criminal defense lawyer, I am much more inclined to put clients on the stand than most criminal defense lawyers. And if you really look at my career and record, you'll see that I've put clients on the stand in death penalty cases, white-collar cases, many kinds of cases. But in this particular situation, I was able to get him to testify without him being cross-examined through the Bashir documentary and the Bashir outtakes. All right, so if Jackson didn't testify, how did the um, defense begin their case? Now, I get that we spent two episodes on the prosecution case, and this is going to be significantly shorter on the defense, but the defense was a significantly shorter presentation. Oh, okay. What, uh, for what reason? Like, what, it, it was just like more succinct than the prosecution case for, because like for one, they only had about 50 witnesses versus the prosecution had 90. And right. also where the prosecution was trying to prove all kinds of things, not just seven counts of child molestation, but you know, the litany of charges, like, conspiracy involving extortion child abduction and false imprisonment and like right. on and on and on right um, yeah okay if i could use like a opera analogy oh the prosecution can you? case yeah i mean i don't know i'm kind of dumb but i would say the prosecution <laughs> case was kind of like a philip glass opera go on yeah, no, I get it. That's the one opera that you've actually come to with me. So There's I There's a bunch I of weird people involved uh, in the audience <laughs> that look like they hang out at the library to take naps. Um, yeah. And, and Michael Jackson's lawyers, the defense was trying to establish only two things, right? That the okay. Arvizos weren't trustworthy people. And that it wasn't provable in this case that Michael Jackson was a child molester. Plus, and this is really the most important thing, the defense didn't have to prove shit. If the prosecution's oh. job was to prove its case, the defense has no legal burden at all. Breaking down the transcript, it almost seemed like the defense case had a tight three-act structure. Something like a Richard Wagner opera, right? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I keep getting shit for mispronouncing <laughs> everything in this show. Yeah, it, well, am I wrong? Is it like Bitcher yeah, it's Wagner? Wagner. It's Wagner, and like if you're gonna talk about a three X structure, it's like literally the last person you should be quoting. But it's it's pretty funny. I, I mean, uh, I, I like your effort. Yeah, I do, you know, it's one of the things that's so endearing is that you mispronounce everything. So it's really nice. It's yeah. I was also homeschooled, you know. Um, so Act One of the opera, we'll say, or the mm -hmm. the the um defense case if i could break it down in three act acts the first act was the young boys that jackson okay. spent time traveling with and admittedly sleeping in the same bed with the those people who are now adults and they were offered by the defense to show that jackson's relationships might have been unusual but they weren't sexual Meantime, NBC News has learned when the defense begins presenting its case, the defense will call immediately three young boys who are now young men, who the prosecution says at one time Michael Jackson molested. Jennifer London, reporting for MSNBC, outside the courthouse. We are being told the defense says these young men will say it never happened. All right, and who were these young men exactly? Well, here's Jackson attorney Thomas Mezzaro talking about the prosecution's claims first. They called witnesses to say Wade Robson was molested, Macaulay Culkin was molested, and Brett Barnes was molested. 
I started my case with Wade Robson, Macaulay Culkin, and Brett Barnes all saying they were not molested. All right. Obviously, I don't need a primer on like Macaulay Culkin. Everybody knows who he is. Um, yeah. Remind me who the other two boys were. Okay, so remember in the earlier episodes when the Jordan Chandler case broke and his PI, um, Jackson's private investigator, Anthony Pelicano, was kind of out front running PR for everything? Right, right. The same guy who was working for Burt, for Burt Fields. Right, 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 for Burt yeah. Fields, so, um, who was Jackson's lawyer at the time, right? But if you recall, once that story hit the press in 1993, Pelicano put together this interview with two kids who had spent a lot of time with Jackson and admitting to sharing his bed. And that interview was broadcast on CNN, and it got replayed by multiple news outlets over and over, and it featured a few people. One of them was Brett Barnes, and here's a clip of him as a child in the 93 video. He is very nice, very, very nice, and he cares a lot about kids, and he he's very kind, and you just say you went to a toy shop, you showed him a toy you wanted, he'd buy that. And if he's wearing a piece of jewelry and you say, oh, that's nice, he'll give it to you. The reporter speaks to Brett Barnes here. What what do you get out of your friendship with him? I, I, a companionship, is he, is, he, is he there for you to talk to and that kind of thing? Well, yeah, there for me to play with, um, there for me to love. He's like... He's like a best friend, except he's big. He's just like a close friend, like a family friend. It's like I've known him all my life and in a past life. He doesn't act overly emotional in that kind of way. He, he, he like loves you like he's your own father, brother, or sister, mother. All right, now if I'm remembering correctly, Brett Barnes um, was the one who traveled with Jackson during his Dangerous Tour, is that right? Right. And if you recall from the first half of Telephone Stories, we know this from former Deputy District Attorney Lauren Weiss, who was investigating the Chandler case. She flew to Australia with Santa Barbara DA Tom Snedden to interview Brett Barnes about his relationship with Jackson. Right, right. And in Australia, there was also um, Wade Robeson. Is that right? No, no. They went to interview Barnes because Wade Robeson, which I often mispronounce as Robson and probably will, had moved to L.A. at this point to pursue like his dance career. So, oh, OK. So remind me what happened um, with that Australia trip. Well, Weiss and company talked to Brett Barnes's parents, but they wouldn't let her speak with their son. Here's Lauren Weiss recapping her interview with the parents. When we got there. Uh, it was really a surprise to the family. We really surprised them. We actually just basically showed up there at their house and waited for them to arrive home. And we talked to the parents for a really, really long time. And they just were uh, so concerned uh, for their child's welfare, is the way they put it, um, did not want him to become part of a media circus and uh, refused to allow us to, to interview him. So that's what happened there. And so to go back, the other boy in the 93 video was, of course, Wade Robeson, and he was 10 at the time of the interview. And here he is in the clip of that interview defending Jackson and their sleepovers. Yeah, you know, there's been different times where it'll just be me and Michael. Then there'll be other times where he has other friends over too. That's what, like what Brett said, it's just... 
a slumber party. We just have a lot of fun. Wade Robeson's mother, Joy Robeson, said in the same program that she had entered Jackson's bedroom and found children having a good old-fashioned time. It's just party time. They watch videos, they eat junk food, they play video games. They play so hard, they fall asleep. They're exhausted, they fall asleep. Okay, I've got it. I think I've got it. Um, so what's the point of the old video from 1993, then? Well, the point of the old video is Brett Barnes, Wade Robeson, and Wade's sister and mother testified in the 2005 trial as defense witnesses, and all four of them made the same point. Nothing happened. That contradicted the DA's portrayal of Jackson as a child molester, so prosecutors attempted to undermine the defense witnesses, kind of putting them in the odd position of trying to push witnesses into admitting that they were abused, even though they said they weren't. Huh. So how would you, like, how exactly would you go about doing that? On cross-examination, prosecutor Ron Zonin did all he could to illustrate that Robeson, age 22 at the time of the trial, was lying about his relationship with Jackson and hiding his sexual molestation. Was Mr. Jackson instrumental in your being able to move to the United States to pursue your career? Zonin asked. Yes, Robeson answered. Are you grateful for Mr. Jackson's help and assistance in the development of your career? Yes. Now, Zonin continued, the first time that you slept with Mr. Jackson, you were seven years old. Is that correct? I slept in the bed with him, but yes, I was seven, Robeson replied. Did you understand my question to mean something other than that? Zonin asked. Sounded like it, Robeson replied. All right, Zonin continued, but you slept in the same bed with him when you were seven years old. Is that correct? Yes. Is it true that there was not another adult anywhere in that room at the time you crawled into bed with Mr. Jackson? True. And in fact, you continued to sleep with Mr. Jackson through the balance of that week during your seventh year. Is that right? Yes. Had you ever crawled into bed with a 30-year-old man prior to that day? My father, Robeson answered, but other than that, no. Throughout your entire adolescence, you had never slept with any other man other than Michael Jackson and your father. Is that correct? Never slept in a bed with any other man. No, Robeson answered. Robeson testified that between ages 8 and 11, he spent many nights alone with Jackson in his bed, not only at Neverland, but at Jackson's Century City and Westwood condos. When did you stop sleeping with Mr. Jackson? Sonan asked. I guess when I was about, I don't know, maybe 13, 14, something like that, Robeson answered. Why did you stop? I didn't stop sleeping with him, I just haven't spent the night with him. I mean, in his room, or anything like that since then, I don't think. Zonin then turned to the sexually explicit material that deputies had seized from Jackson's home. If you knew that the person, the 35-year-old man who was sleeping with an 8-year-old boy, possessed a great quantity of sexually explicit material, would that cause you concern about that person's motivations while he was in bed with the boy? Robeson answered, yes, and Zonin quickly interjected, no further questions. Thomas Mesro popped up to smooth things over for the defense. If you had known Michael Jackson as a grown man was reading Playboy, Hustler, Penthouse, 
magazines like that showing naked women. Would that have concerned you? Mesereau asked. No, Robeson answered. That's what I was going to say afterward. Depends on what kind of material, what kind of pornographic material you were talking about. What followed was Prosecutor Zonin then presenting exhibits of the sexually explicit material in Jackson's possession to Wade Robeson and asking him to leaf through various pages describing their contents. Boys Will Be Boys, the photographic essay book of adolescence, which included images of fully nude children, some with their genitals prominently displayed. Would you be concerned about having your 12-year-old child in bed with a person who possesses a book like that? No, Robeson answered. In his final round, Mesro asked Robeson, Has anything this prosecutor for the government has said to you changed your opinion of Michael Jackson? Not at all. Does it change your opinion as to whether or not he ever did anything inappropriate with a child? Not at all. No further questions. Wade Robeson, the defense's lead witness, stepped down. All right, so it's like no matter what, the prosecution can't break Robson at all. Robson, exactly. Not even the slightest. <laughs> and the same went for Brett Barnes. You know, that's rich coming from somebody who can't pronounce anything correctly. <laughs> After Barnes, age 23 at the time of his courtroom appearance, emphatically testified that he had not been molested and that he was angry about the suggestion that he had been, Ron Zonin tried a different tact. He turned to the prosecution's allegation that Jackson groomed his victims for abuse and questioned Barnes about those aspects of his relationship with Michael Jackson. Did he ever tell you that you were like family to him? Zonin asked Barnes. All the time, Barnes answered. All the time, Zonin said. Did he ever tell you that you should trust him? Yeah, answered Barnes. Did he ever tell you that he was like a father to you? He may have, yes, Barnes answered. Brett Barnes's sister, Carly, testified the following day that she estimated that over the two-year period her brother traveled internationally with Michael Jackson, he spent 365 nights exclusively with Michael Jackson in Michael Jackson's bed alone. When asked by Prosecutor Gordon Auchincloss if she thought that that was odd, that a 35-year-old man was sleeping with a 10-year-old boy for that period of time, she replied, not at all. All right, so again, they're saying absolutely nothing happened. Yeah, and the same went for the defense's last witness who kind of formed this triumvirate of Jackson's special friends. After Macaulay Culkin arrived and left the courthouse here in Santa Maria with very little fanfare. MSNBC's Jennifer London reporting again, outside the courthouse. His testimony didn't last too long. In a very clear and strong voice, he told the jury, Michael Jackson never touched him inappropriately. He also said, quote, I never saw him act improper with anybody. And today, many observers saying Culkin's testimony was powerful for the defense. Legal analyst Trent Copeland speaks here for MSNBC. It's hard to imagine there being a better witness for Michael Jackson than McCullough Culkin. I mean, he not only answered certain questions about whether or not he was molested by Michael Jackson, and he affirmatively said no, but he also gave us the clearest, and I think the most succinct window into the mind of Michael Jackson. And today, that just hasn't happened. Jennifer London, reporting again 
for MSNBC. Culkin did say yes, he shared a bed with Michael Jackson, but he described it as more like falling asleep on Jackson's bed. The prosecution then attempting to try and suggest that perhaps Jackson molested Culkin while he was sleeping. Prosecutor zoning saying, so as far as you know, you were never molested while you were awake. Culkin's response, as far as I know, I was never molested by Michael Jackson. Man, I've got to say, like, it's still... It just feels so weird that he's sleeping with all these little boys. Well, that's the case. And the defense, of course, tried its best to acknowledge that, you know, yes, it's unusual, but he's Michael Jackson and his whole deal is children. So this may seem strange, but it's not inappropriate or illegal. Here's legal analyst Jim Morad on MSNBC. Think whatever you want. Consider Michael Jackson weird. Sure, he has sleepovers, but every single one of the people who said he molested a boy is either wrong or lying, and that's what the defense has to do. The second act of the defense case was a deconstruction of the prosecution's former and current Neverland employees' testimony about seeing Michael Jackson behaving badly. This time, a string of witnesses testified they did not see Michael Jackson molest any children, and for good measure, threw a little shade on the witnesses who said they did. One was Franson Contreras, who testified to working with former maid and prosecution witness Adrian McManus. Contreras testified that McManus, A, never mentioned anything about witnessing molestation of any boys at the ranch, and B, she testified she visited McManus's home and noticed she'd stolen clothing and other items from Neverland. There was also Violet Silva, a security officer at the ranch starting in 1991. She testified that she never once observed Jackson doing anything illegal or inappropriate. Same with Joseph Marcus, another security guard who had worked at the ranch from even before Jackson's purchase of the property. The prosecution had little to work with in cross-examination. In one exchange, prosecutor Gordon Auchincloss questioned Ramon Velasco, a man who worked at Neverland as a cook, dishwasher, and gardener. Through an interpreter, Velasco testified on direct that he never saw anything inappropriate with Michael Jackson, and on cross-examination, Achenklaas asked him, You mentioned that you saw nothing inappropriate between Mr. Jackson and young boys, is that correct? Correct, Velasco answered through the interpreter. Mr. Velasco, were you permitted to go into Mr. Jackson's room when the door was closed? I don't recall, Velasco answered through the interpreter. Were you permitted to go into Mr. Jackson's room any time you wished? No, Velasco answered through the interpreter. So, can I safely say that you were not aware of what Mr. Jackson did in his room when the door was closed and when he was in there with somebody? Yes, of course, Velasco answered, you know, through the interpreter. Okay, so what's the third act of this defense case? So the third act of the defense is what I like to call the drag the Arvizos through the mud and light their corpses on fire part of the defense case. (laughs) You know, I love your flair for words, I've got to admit. I mean, if that's a little dramatic, I'd say the third act of the defense is like, let's tar and feather the Arvizo family. Yeah, I I know. You went from dramatic to uh, very reasonable, actually, so I, I appreciate that. Those years of improv comedy training paid off. So the last (laughs) act was to present another string of Neverland employees to testify to either Janet Arvizo not saying she was being held against their will 
or the Arbizo boys being like rude and obnoxious house guests. There was Tiffany Haynes, an orthodontic assistant, who testified that Jackson paid for work on Gavin and Starr's braces while they were staying at Neverland. Carol McCoy, an esthetician, who testified to giving Janet Arvizo a full body wax in her spa in Los Olivos. Both Haynes and McCoy also testified that they never saw the Arvizos indicate in any way that they were being held against their will. Shane Meredith, a Neverland security guard who testified that he found the Arvizo brothers in the wine cellar with a half-empty bottle of wine sitting on the table between them. Angel Vivanco, a chef assistant at the ranch, who testified that Starr demanded he make him a milkshake with alcohol in it, or he would get him fired. On another occasion, Vivanco testified, while helping him in the kitchen, Starr pointed a knife at his neck. There was social worker Karen Walker, who testified to interviewing Janet Arvizo for DCFS, and said Arvizo never mentioned being held against her will. Jackson's cousin, Riho, testified to finding Gavin and Starr in a guest room, masturbating to a naked woman on TV. He also testified to seeing them taking wine meant to go to Jackson's room and taking money from drawers. There was time spent discrediting Janet Arvizo for her welfare fraud. An employee of LA County Department of Social Services testified to Janet's fraudulent application that failed to disclose her settlement from JCPenney and lying in the application about not having medical insurance. Another witness said Janet Arvizo confessed that the injuries she blamed on the department store security guards actually were inflicted by her husband. And still, another witness said Janet Arvizo blamed a group of black men for attacking her family in an alleyway. And there was more. Connie Keenan, the editor of the Mid-Valley News, a community newspaper in El Monte and the surrounding areas, testified to regretfully publishing an article during Gavin's illness called Gavin Still Smiles after Janet pestered her office until she relented. Keenan testified that the article, a human interest story about Gavin and his family, the financial difficulties they faced, and the expensive costs of his treatment, was not normally the type of story they did. But due to Janet Arvizo's continuing pressure, she okayed it with misgivings. In particular, Keenan questioned a $12,000 chemo injection that Janet Arvizo said they needed money for, saying she thought it was a little over the top. Keenan testified she later found out that Gavin was covered by insurance, which included the injections. She testified she didn't know how much money was raised, but said she refused to run another story, despite Janet's request to do so, because Janet felt the first story didn't raise enough money. The other prong of the third act of the defense was no doubt glamorous for the Santa Maria jury. There were some famous, and kind of famous, witnesses that happened to cross paths with the Arvizo family because of all its Laugh Factory comedy club connections. Private investigator for the defense, Scott Ross. We put, I think, over 50-some-odd people through the witness chair, uh, never missed a single day. Vernay Watson-Johnson, who played Will Smith's mother in The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and through friend Carol Lemire, introduced Gavin to Michael Jackson, testified to discussing with Janet about raising money for Gavin while he was ill, but she said she didn't trust her. Watson Johnson added that she proposed Janet open a trust fund account for Gavin's money, but Janet wanted to put whatever was raised in her own bank account. Watson Johnson 
also testified that one time the Arvizos came to visit her house. They were very unruly, she said on the witness stand of the Arvizo children, and they were all into my stuff. They would walk around my house, they would be all in other rooms, they were jumping on my son's bed, just very disruptive. The prosecution declined to cross-examine her. Bigger names followed, including Jay Leno. He spoke about receiving repeated phone calls from Gavin during the time the boy had cancer. Leno noted that the calls seemed scripted, proving that the trial had slipped beyond criminal justice and into popular culture. The E! Entertainment Network covered the trial, and during this phase occasionally aired reenactments of scenes from testimony. In this clip, an actor playing Thomas Mesereau examines Jay Leno, who is played by none other than fellow late-night host Jimmy Kimmel. Mesereau first asked Leno about working with children's organizations, and Leno testified that his number was widely available for fans and children to call him to talk. At times, do people who want to reach you get a hold of you directly? Yes. And how does that happen? They just call me. I'm pretty accessible. I pick up the phone. I go, hi, this is Jay. And they go, no, it's not. And I go, yes, it is. And and I spent 10 minutes convincing them it is me. But, uh, yeah. If they call the studio, can they get right to you or do they go Sometimes right? Sometimes they can get right to me. Actually, yeah, they can. Up until today, they could get right to me. <laughs> until just a few minutes ago, you could reach me quite easily. Do you recall what Gavin said to you? The voicemail I got were... Oh, I'm a big fan, you're the greatest. Overly effusive for a 12-year-old. Most of the time when you talk to children, they talk like, Hi, how you doing? Uh, good to see you. I mean, it's, you kind of have to pull it out of them. Hi, how you feeling? Good, hi. I mean, you're talking to a kid. And this was sounded very adult-like conversation, I thought. It just, you know, perked my interest at the time. When you say overly effusive, what do you mean? Jay Leno, you're the greatest. You know, I think you're wonderful, you're my hero, this type of thing, which seemed a little odd to me at the time with someone so young, why a comedian in his mid-fifties would be, you know, I'm not Batman, you know what I mean? It just seemed a little unusual, but okay. On cross-examination, here dramatized from the transcripts for the E! Network, an actor playing Ron Zonin asked Jimmy Kimmel, again playing Jay Leno, whether he was familiar with the comedy camp and its work with sick children. Were you aware that he had had kind of a long association with comedians like Chris Tucker and George Lopez and had even met Adam Sandler? Yeah, I found that out later. Would that tend to suggest to you that he really did have a sincere appreciation of comedians? Yes, it did. Does that clarify, at least in your mind, to some extent, the motivation for the multiple voice messages that he left? Yes, it became clear. Did he ask you for money in any of those calls? No, no one ever asked me for anything, and I'm sure of that because if they had, I would have sent something. Did Gavin ask you to do anything in these calls other than speak with him? No, I was never asked for any, you know, financial things or anything like that. All right, so you never had occasion to send them money, is that correct? No. And he did not ask you for money, is that right? No, no one asked me for money. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Dude, this whole Leno thing in and of itself, but also with Kimmel on reenactments, is like a whole nother level of bananas. Yeah, it's like that movie Inception, you know, where it's like a dream within a dream within a dream. Yeah, totally. And there's like this limbo level, too. Yeah, yeah, and I think you could say that Larry King ended up in the limbo level of the trial. Oh, what happened with Larry King? Well, the defense wanted Larry King to testify about a conversation he had with attorney Larry Feldman. King testified, but without the jury president, that he and some of his business associates met with Larry Feldman at Nate and Al's, a legendary restaurant in Beverly Hills, kind of before the trial started. And King testified that Feldman said, that Janet Arvizo was a wacko and that she's in this for the money. Ultimately, though, Judge Melville ruled that King's testimony would not be allowed. Oh, man. I mean, that's too bad. I would have loved to have seen Larry King, like, leaning insanely close to the microphone with those crazy uh, suspenders that he wears. Yeah, he'd be, like, hosting his own testimony. Okay, we're going direct from prosecution. You've got five seconds. (laughs) But Omar, guess who the attorney was that represented Larry King at his appearance in court? Uh, Burt Fields. No. In many respects, the attacks on prosecution witnesses by the defense were not scattershot. Rather, they were part of a methodical operation, researched and executed by Scott Ross. Well, Scott Ross did a fabulous job as an investigator. He was our lead investigator. He was extremely professional and diligent at all times. He conducted himself in a first-class manner. Thomas Mesereau. He was the one that really did the primary investigation into the prosecution's witnesses and case. He was relentless. He did a fantastic job. And, you know, I was able to spend a lot of time preparing 
to examine witnesses knowing full well that Scott was behind the scenes digging up everything he could find on these witnesses. In addition to investigative duties, Scott Ross was also in charge of contacting defense witnesses to testify. The act of transporting and lodging those witnesses in a town as remote and small as Santa Maria required a standalone position for a de facto travel agent. My wife, Elizabeth, you know, she was instrumental in making all of the travel arrangements, the logistics. She was bringing in people from Australia and bringing in people from New York. And and she was amazing in dealing with and catering to the egos. And, um, you know, while I'm actually trying to do my job, uh, my wife, Elizabeth, is actually the one out there making all of these arrangements and, and sort of dealing with the logistics, which is not a simple task by any stretch. She was booking those rooms and, and making arrangements for witnesses to fly into town. I, I have to commend her. Thomas Mesereau. Our case went in very smoothly. The witnesses were there on time. Um, everything seemed very smooth. Everything was done by the book. On May 19, 2005, the mother of Chris Tucker's son, Asia Pryor, testified for the defense. Pryor said she, too, had become friendly with the Arvizo children and their mother. Through her testimony, she put a different light on the prosecution's account of Jackson's team plotting to abscond with the Arvizos to Brazil in order to keep them out of the public eye. Pryor testified that Jan and Arvizo invited her to go with them to Brazil and never once mentioned worries or complaints about the trip or say that she was being forced to go. Other well-known witnesses and potential witnesses did their best to keep their distance altogether. According to private investigator Scott Ross, some of these high-profile defense witnesses were pretty reticent about testifying. You know, again, these, these people that were that were coming in to testify were not being cooperative. You know, nobody wanted anything to do with it. Um, it's really sad. You know, anytime you get a child molesting, nobody wants to be a part of it. Nobody wants to be a witness to it. That being said, I can tell you that Chris Tucker uh, is the only one that ever told me it really doesn't matter who it is that I would step up for anybody. Chris Tucker, the defense's final witness, stepped up for his friend, Michael Jackson. Tucker, at the time, was doing extremely well at the box office. His earnest efforts to help the Arvizo family during Gavin's horrific cancer diagnosis were admirable, if not heroic. His testimony at the trial, though, illustrated that he felt duped by the Arvizo family, whom he described with regret and even disgust. Of the mother Janet, he said he thought she was possessed and had mental problems. Tucker testified that he had once considered Gavin a friend, but now he called him cunning and described Gavin asking him for money on several occasions, once when a Laugh Factory fundraiser failed to meet the Arvizo family's expectations. Tucker testified that Star Arvizo was cunning too, and he would accuse Tucker of having too much stuff. Tucker said that he would have to almost check his pockets before the boy left Tucker's house. It was one more blow to the prosecution case, a blow that came with the sass not uncommon from Chris Tucker himself in rush hour. You don't know me? I see what's going on here. Y'all trying to play me like a fool. Y'all think I'm a fool. After a few more questions from defense attorney Thomas Mesereau, it was the prosecution's turn to question him. But DA Tom Sneddon declined, saying no questions. 
After Chris Tucker stepped down from the witness stand, Mesereau announced, Your Honor, the defense rests. On an NBC News show, former federal prosecutor, legal commentator, and Loyola Law School professor Lori Levinson summarized the dueling realities that the trial produced for jurors and the public to consider. This case is all about conspiracy, but the question is, which conspiracy do you believe? The prosecution's theory that Michael Jackson and his people were conspiring to hold this family, or the defense theory that the family was conspiring to get money out of Michael Jackson? All right, so this is where Tom Snedden and Tom Mesereau kind of face off with their closing arguments. Is that right? Right. Well, it was actually Ron Zonin who did the closing arguments, which surprised me. Yeah, that is weird. What, what happened? Well, it's not as weird as I thought, um, because I asked Ron Zonin why he was chosen to deliver the final arguments to the jury, and this is what he told me. Tom asked me to do it. Uh, I don't know how common that was. I mean, we had kind of decided that midway through the trial, and uh, he felt that um, there were a couple issues going on. He frankly thought I had a better rapport with the jury. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a more pleasant demeanor in a courtroom than he does. He tends to be kind of gruff. But he was also the target of a lot of criticism from the defense. They focused on him. You know, this this corrupt and, and horribly misguided prosecution done for revenge purposes because we couldn't make the first case. I mean, they really just hammered away on that in a number of different focuses. And, and uh, um, the family had spoken so disparagingly of him. And he was even the subject of a song that Jackson had written. So it, it ultimately ended up being um, probably the right thing to do. And I do a pretty good closing argument. Ron Zonin's closing argument for the prosecution began on June 2nd. He appeared before the jury and said, Ladies and gentlemen, this case is about the exploitation and sexual abuse of a 13-year-old cancer survivor at the hands of an international celebrity. Zonin went on, The case is about a woman trying to protect her children from a collection of overpaid employees, all determined to profit at the expense of her and her children. The defense in this case, Zonin said, is limited entirely to attacking the mother of this child, as well as the children. To oppose the defense's case that the Arvizos pursued Jackson, Zonin emphasized Jackson's role in cultivating their friendship. It's Michael Jackson who invited the Arvizo children to his home in September of 2002 so that he might benefit from their inclusion in a documentary that was designed to jumpstart his career. It was Michael Jackson who called those kids to his house on that day. It was Michael Jackson who told Gavin Arvizo that, this is an audition for you. It was Michael Jackson who put those children in that documentary. It was Michael Jackson who decided that these children were necessary for him to be able to further his career, to be able to stem the flow of negative press that was occurring as a consequence of that documentary. Shifting to Janet Arvizo, arguably the Achilles heel in the prosecution's case, Zonin said that Janet Arvizo had never asked for one penny from Michael Jackson, and to this day has never asked anything of him, has never desired anything from him, and there is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that she does today. To Jason Franzia, Zonin said, he appears to be the kind of young man you want living next door to you. He is an absolutely a delightful young man, and there's just no indication that there's anything about his personality or character that could be defined in any way 
other than absolutely beyond reproach, a man of impeccable character and integrity. He came into this courtroom and he testified that he was molested by Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson paid money to his mother and to him to settle that claim against him, as did he do for Jordy Chandler. Speaking about the Chandler family, Sonin described how, much like with Gavin, Jackson first spoke for hours to the boy by phone, then gained the trust and admiration of the boy's mother with gifts and travel, then seduced her son. June Chandler has lost her son as a consequence of this. She hasn't had a conversation or seen her son since he was 13 years old. About the 93 case, Zonin said, When all of this came to light, the investigation occurred. He went to live with his father. There is no reason to disbelieve anything June Chandler said, Zonin argued to the jury. In that lawsuit, she got a settlement as well, and that settlement was at the request of the defense. And it was at the request of the defense because it included within that settlement a provision that she not discuss any aspect of Michael Jackson or that settlement. That money that she got was to buy her silence, and it did until this came along. Returning again to Franzia, Zonin acknowledged that, yes, his mother was paid $20,000 by a tabloid program, but that her son knew nothing about it until this trial, and that Michael Jackson paid money to his mother and to him to settle that claim against him, but he didn't mention the $2 million amount of that settlement or the fact that Jason Franzia testified he didn't even learn about it until he was 17. Zonin asserted that Jason Franzia, now 24, was an upstanding fine young man, a young man who persevered through his difficulties to testify at the trial with absolutely nothing at all to gain from it. If you believe that Jason Franzia testified truthfully as he testified before you, then Michael Jackson is a child molester, Zonin insisted. If you believe that his testimony is truthful, and you have no reason in the world not to believe it, it's corroborated by the fact that Michael Jackson paid this kid off, and the mother, and it's corroborated by the fact that, frankly, the testimony of Gavin himself, but it's mostly corroborated by this child himself, whose presentation before you was absolutely sincere and painful. You watched him struggle through his testimony in very much the same way that Gavin struggled through his, both on that video and in court as well. Of Gavin's appearance on the witness stand, Zonin argued, the suggestion that his testimony was contrived and part of a plot to shake down a celebrity is nonsense. You'll notice they never accused Chris Tucker of anything. They never accused George Lopez of anything. There were a variety of celebrities that they were exposed to when Gavin was sick. None of them have ever been the recipient of any accusation whatsoever. As he wrapped up his closing arguments, Zonin touched on the Jackson camp, taking advantage of the Arvizo family by using them in the Bashir documentary and subsequently attempting to send them away to Brazil. The incentive in this case by Michael Jackson and all of his employees, Zonin assured the jurors, was, first of all, to exploit this family financially so that he might be able to salvage a second career financially and bring some much-needed funds into that business enterprise, and secondly, to salvage his career, and that was done at the expense of this family. It is also the case that Gavin Arvizo, demonstrating remarkable courage in coming into this courtroom, 
gave testimony to you about a series of events that took place in Michael Jackson's bedroom when Michael Jackson, not for the first time, took sexual liberties with a 13-year-old boy. That information and testimony is entirely credible, entirely accurate, and entirely truthful. It should be believed, and Michael Jackson should be held responsible for what he did. When Mesereau rose and faced the jury, his argument focused on the reliability of the Arvizos. You've heard so much testimony about the scams of Mrs. Arvizo, he began. The prosecutor gets up and tries to prop her up, justify her actions, explain her as a nice person, tell you you can trust her, tells you everyone should trust her, and especially looks at you in the eye and says, she never asked for money. Think about their lack of credibility, Mesereau said to the jury. Their lies under oath, their manipulative scams and schemes. Are you sure they're victims? Of the 1108 and prior bad acts witnesses, Mesereau surmised for the jury. A prosecutor once told me, prior bad acts are a band-aid for a bad case because none of these alleged victims are alleged victims in this case. So why do they bring them in? If they've got such a great case for Gavin being a victim, why are they bringing these people in? And why are they trying to sell you false claims of molestation? And I do mean false. Mesereau noted, Macaulay Culkin says he was never molested. He called it absolutely ridiculous. And they tried to attack Macaulay like he was trying to lie on the stand. They want you to believe people like Ralph Chacon, Adrian McManus, and Kasim Abdul, rather than Macaulay Culkin, or Wade Robeson, or Brett Barnes? Why does a prosecution come into this courtroom and tell you these three people are victims of molestation when they are absolutely adamant they're not? Why? If they're trying to tell you the truth. It all, Mesero insisted, came down to the credibility of the Arvizos. If you do not believe the Arvizos beyond a reasonable doubt, Michael Jackson must be acquitted. That's the law, and these claims are completely based upon you having to believe the Arvizos every which way but Sunday. You've got to believe them. And he stressed that that wasn't possible. Now, I submit that the witnesses we have called in the cross-examination we have elicited in this case proves the Arvizos are con artists actors, and liars. The issue in this case, Mesereau said, is the life, the future, the freedom, and the reputation of Michael Jackson. That's what's about to be placed in your hands, and the question you have before you is very simple. Do you believe the Arvizos beyond a reasonable doubt, or not? If you don't, Michael Jackson must go free. Huh, didn't you say the last thing the jury saw was that um, video of Gavin Arvizo disclosing to the police the alleged abuse? It was one of the last things the jury saw, the government's videotape of Gavin's interview with detectives Steve Robell and Paul Zellis. But to counter that, the defense showed footage of Jackson defending his unusual relationships with children as being innocent. Here's NBC's Mike Taibbi reporting. 
The jury was left with the two video images in conflict in this case. A boy, a cancer survivor, telling police how he claims Michael Jackson molested him, like so many boys before him, prosecutors said. And the pop star himself, poignantly explaining that children alone have never betrayed or deceived him, and how hurting a child, any child, would be impossible. Each image pressed on this jury with equivalent urgency. True crime author Aphrodite Jones, who reported from the courtroom, recalls being convinced that prosecutor Tom Snedden was out to convict Michael Jackson, despite what she viewed as a weak case. Snedden was so determined to find a way to put Jackson behind bars that he didn't care. He didn't care about the timeline that didn't match. He didn't care about their history. He didn't care about anything. He didn't care about their um, mixed messages in their testimony. He felt that he had put on a very strong case, and I happened to run into him and his team just after the case rested while the jury was beginning deliberations, and they were having a pseudo-celebration in the back room of a restaurant that I happened to be at, um, and I saw them. I saw them in the bar first, and they were clearly very pleased with themselves, very proud of themselves, and felt 100% certain that Michael Jackson was going to go away and be put away into prison. I told Ron Zonin about Aphrodite Jones' description of citing the prosecution team. He had a different recollection. No, we went to a restaurant. Yeah. And we were, no, we were having dinner. That's <laughs> yeah, it was framed as kind of a... You know, I saw her. She was at the restaurant. There weren't a lot of restaurants that we went to in, in Santa Maria. But this was at, um, I think, the Hitching Post, which is a steakhouse in Casmalia. And um, no, we weren't celebrating. We we probably tend to be loud on our best days or lesser days, um, but we weren't celebrating. We saw her there. We said hello to her. Reporter Diane Diamond asserts she was at the same restaurant that night and defended Prosecutor Ron Zonin's recollection of events. I happened to be in the Hitching Post restaurant that night. I was seated over in the corner. Terry Strickland, the hostess, always snuck me back in the quiet corner. And I saw the DA sitting back there having dinner. And I saw Aphrodite Jones swirl in and make a beeline for them and say in a loud voice, Hey, are we celebrating? It was kind of an embarrassing moment. They Nobody spoke to her. They all looked away. And I thought it was so odd because what would they be celebrating? Thomas Mesereau, although mostly disconnected from the media scrum, recalls that during the jury deliberations, certain networks ran coverage of what Jackson's future incarceration might look like. Uh, you may recall during jury deliberation that Fox News and I think some other stations were putting a jail cell on every day where they said, you know, he was likely to end up and telling, uh, making copy out of just how prisoners lived in the jail and what they ate and what their schedule was. I mean, the efforts to spin the verdict they wanted for business reasons were never ending. This is the Santa Barbara County Jail where Michael Jackson would likely be transported if convicted on any of the most serious charges. Dan Abrams of MSNBC interviewed former Santa Barbara Sheriff Jim Thomas for the Abrams Report. In this segment, they walk outside the Santa Barbara County Jail and discuss the rudimentary procedures for felons following a conviction in court. 
What's striking in their conversation is that they make it seem as if Jackson's incarceration is a done deal. You're brought in, uh, you do the paperwork that's necessary, you get a mental medical evaluation. Again, they, they inventory your property, you sign for that, they place you in jail clothing, and then they make so a he determination. Would, he'd, have to, he'd have to wear a particular Absolutely. uniform, what would it look like? Absolutely. He would probably wear a two-piece, which is a pair of pants and something like a sweatshirt. No armband, huh? No armband. And I can assure you there'd be no deputy sheriff carrying his umbrella. Yeah. Later in the package, B-roll footage of the inside of the jail is displayed to the audience. So after he's booked, this is the facility where Jackson will be brought? Yeah, Dan, it's my understanding that they have a cell here ready for him. Really? They're already prepared? That they're prepared. Uh, that would have a full 24-hour camera so they can, they can watch him 24 hours a day because they'd be worried about his mental health. When you say Jackson would be on a suicide watch, as a practical matter, what would that mean in terms of his cell? It would mean that he would probably be under 24-hour camera so they could watch him at all times. They would have a log where they would log While the jury deliberated, the phalanx of reporters and international news media personnel waited, along with fans, for news to come from the courthouse. I think the world is watching the American justice system at work in the Michael Jackson trial. NBC News analyst Susan Filan speaking to NOS, a Dutch news network. And even though this is a big celebrity trial of importance to Americans, I think it's captured the attention of the world. Anything other than the three-hour verdict we had in the O.J. Simpson case, I think will restore people's faith in the justice system. On June 13, 2005, after a 14-week trial and 30 hours of jury deliberations over the course of seven days, the verdict was read in the courtroom. For the first time in the entire trial, audio was played live from the courtroom. Sky News broadcast the verdict, as did numerous other outlets. Here we go. Here we go, Jane. This is the audio feed from the court. Superior Court of the State of California for the County of Santa Barbara, Santa Maria Division, the people of the State of California Plaintiff versus Michael Joe Jackson Defendant, case number 1133603, count one, verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of conspiracy as charged in count one of the indictment, dated June 13th, 2005, four person number 80. Count two, verdict. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of a lewd act upon a minor child as charged in count two of the indictment. Famed courtroom sketch artist Bill Robles was present covering the trial. He recalled the reaction at the defense table. Well, you know, you would expect there would be jubilation on the uh, defense side, but they just sat like he was medicated michael jackson was so he was not about to jump leap up and you know hug the attorneys it was not that kind of thing not guilty of lewd act upon a minor child as charged in count four of the indictment dated june 10th count six verdict we the jury in the above entitled case find the defendant not guilty of attempting to commit a lewd act upon a minor child there are only count the seven verdicts. the jury in the above entitled case find the defendant not guilty of administering an intoxicating agent to assist in the commission. On TV, as Jackson fans cheered outside the courthouse, 
a blonde, white woman in a pale green outfit, released white doves from a cage upon the announcement of each not guilty. We, the jury in the above entitled case, find the defendant not guilty of providing alcoholic beverages to persons under the age of I've just heard uh, Judge Rodney Melville say to a court, his last words to a court as he left um, from the door uh, that's been to his left all of the time, he said to Mr. Jackson, Michael Jackson, he said, Mr. Jackson, your bail is exonerated and you are released. Words that will be played, I'm sure. Out here, outside the courtroom, the cries and cheers became louder and louder with each finding of the jury that Michael Jackson was not guilty. Michael Jackson himself, the first time we've seen him since being acquitted on these charges, just walking through the court, not an emotion on his face. He still looks rather blank. We're on pictures of Michael Jackson waving to the crowd, walking out, and the crescendo grows from his fans. Well, there is to be no press conference. Michael Jackson and his family members, with a thank you, a touch on the shoulder, a shake of the hand, says one final grateful thanks to his defence team, and straight into the SUV. And the Jackson car is leaving court. He's a free man. The crowd surge on the street to watch the car leave. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Do you remember the look on Stedden's face? He looked shocked. Absolutely shocked. Um... I remember when the last not guilty came down, uh, I hugged Michael and I hugged my teammates. And I remember uh, seeing Snedden with his head sort of lowered. And I also remember some representatives of the media looking very uh, upset as they walked out of the courtroom. The story was over. I think what they wanted was a conviction. They wanted to see him hauled off to jail. They wanted there to be months of buildup before his sentencing with all kinds of rumors about how he was doing in jail, what he was eating, what he was drinking, what he was reading. Was he going to kill himself? Uh, who were his confidants? I think they felt cheated out of uh, all of this uh, copy that they desperately wanted. 
Uh, they wanted to see him go down. In fact, uh, Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, told me after the trial, you cost the worldwide media billions of dollars by acquitting Michael because they just wanted that last chapter written their way, which would have been to see someone rise to the greatest heights imaginable and see them utterly shatter with destructive effect. And they wanted that last chapter and they were denied that. Following the verdict, Jurors gathered for a talk with members of the press, including MSNBC, which ran live tape of the Q&A. An unidentified member of the press speaks first. I wanted to direct this question mainly to the parents on the jury, somebody with children. And some of the more troubling evidence to many observers was about Mr. Jackson um, sleeping in bed with children. And I was wondering if you found that troubling or believable, and B, if you would approve if your own child, children would do such a thing. Uh, any, any parents on the jury? Uh, I see you nodding, ma'am. I could like to ask you. Juror number 10 responds. Well, as a parent, um, you know, it's uh, something that you are constantly, every moment of your day, you're protective over what happens to your children. And um, I guess I might be speaking maybe for myself and a few others, um, jurors, that, you know, uh, what mother in her right mind would allow that to happen or, or you know just freely uh, volunteer your child you know to um, sleep with someone and um, not just so much Michael Jackson but any person for that matter so um, that's something you know that mothers I think are naturally concerned with all right so it's almost like the logic here is um, if Jackson was guilty like if he was a wolf it's the fault of the all these mothers for delivering their children to a wolf yeah, I mean, it is a weird duality. Like, no, Michael Jackson is innocent. But if he isn't, we can't blame him. Like, it's beyond a flawed logic. Like, the, I don't know. I mean, the jurors also appeared on other programs to discuss their opinions. NBC's Mike Taibbi again summed up these appearances to Dan Abrams on the Abrams Report. And I think what you heard is the internal debate so many people had, so many reasonable people, and in this case people who were knowledgeable about this case, about which way to lean. And what you really heard was the distinction, be the semantic distinction between the words not guilty and the word innocent. A lot of people in Jackson's camp are going to be saying this proves he's innocent. Well, in the minds of many people, even people on this jury, it's quite clear they don't believe that at all. And I have to tell you, and you know this too, Dan, because you've been sitting with people too who've been involved in the coverage of this case, that very informed people who thought very hard about all this evidence have found it difficult to side on one side without conceding that the other side has validity. Uh, there are two polar opposite points of view about the facts not in dispute in this case. Uh, yeah. as, as one juror said, the one who was quoted by the Associated Press, I think he's a child molester. I think he's done it in the past, but it didn't meet the standard of beyond reasonable doubt in this case. I asked Prosecutor Zonin if he recalled when things began to fall apart in the courtroom for the government's case. Oh, I, I, saw, I saw things fall apart in the jury selection. I mean, I, I saw the first minutes when they were walking the jury in, and they would walk into the room and, and literally stop as soon as they made it three or four feet into the room, looking right at Michael Jackson, and the bailiff had to keep reminding people, please keep going, please keep going, please keep going. Um, there, anybody who thinks that prosecuting an international superstar is the, the same thing as prosecuting a man who nobody knows is kidding themselves. 
uh, there's an entirely different standard of proof that's required for the prosecution in those kinds of cases. We had one person after another get on the into the jury box and just giddy with excitement about the fact that they're in the same room with Michael Jackson, talked about how they listened to his records and and uh, smiling and laughing. We had two jurors, both women, who were on the jury who every morning came to court and the first thing they did was smile right at Michael Jackson and continue smiling at him until he would look at them and smile back and, and then they would all settle down and listen to the evidence for the day. I was pretty certain from jury selection that we were not going to win the case, but that we may hang it up and try it again. But part of the problem is when a judge tells uh, a jury panel, this trial is going to take six months, you immediately lose anybody who has a life, somebody who runs a business, somebody who supports their family, who can't be away for work for a six-month period of time. You end up with retired people, people who are unemployed, people who are unemployable, um, students. You tend to have with the type of jurors that prosecutors don't really want. We want the guy who runs a business or a woman. We want somebody who has had to hire people and fire people people who have to make decisions about other people's lives, even when those decisions are adverse to their interests. Someone who has to make, I mean, the ability to fire an employee because they're just not working is a very difficult decision to do. It's a difficult act to do. It's probably the one thing that most closely approximates a jury's decision to convict somebody, knowing that the consequence of that decision is going to be dire on that person. In a segment on Good Morning America following the verdict, Diane Sawyer asked a selection of the jurors who appeared if the celebrity factor had affected their verdict. Are you sure? Are you sure that this gigantically renowned guy walking in a room had no influence at all? Jury foreman, now identified as Paul Rodriguez, answers first. We talked about that right. when we first started um, the trial mm -hmm. and when we went into deliberations that came up we talked about that quite intensively I think and uh, we all felt that we have to look at this man just like we would anybody else you know just anyone off the street anyone in particular you know just not looking at him as a celebrity in fact as the trial was going yeah. on we really didn't uh, pay much attention to him. Another juror Sawyer identified as Melissa Herard speaks. At first it was kind of intimidating, uh, somewhat. I mean, to be honest, it was. But for sitting there for four months and watching him every day, and I came to realize that, you know, he's a person. He's a human. And to me that just the celebrity status just went out. He's, a, he's a, just another person. 14 not guilties, including four misdemeanors, is quite a statement. Thomas Mesereau. By a conservative jury in a conservative town. And by the way, uh, I laugh every time former prosecutor Ron Zonin says this was a dumb jury. Because on that jury, we had a math teacher with a master's degree in math. We had a retired school principal with a master's degree in counseling. We had a civil engineer... We had the head of a local social services agency. We had people with military backgrounds from the local military base. This was a smart jury who, in my opinion, went very carefully through the evidence and decided they were going to do what was right. 
one of the smartest juries I've ever been in front of. District Attorney Tom Snedden appeared on a segment of Scarborough Country on MSNBC to discuss his reaction to the jury's decision with correspondent Rita Cosby. We felt that we did the best job that we could, and uh, that's it. I mean, uh, uh, that's my, that's our philosophy, you know. You, you do the best you can, and uh, that, we're not the judge and we're not the jury. We're the, we're the people who put on the case, and we feel that we did a, a, a very good job. Well, Better than you, good job, an excellent job. Did you talk to the boy? Uh, what was his reaction? He was... Um, very discouraged. He was, uh, as you would expect, a young 15-year-old boy who everybody in the world now knows the jury didn't believe what he said, was very discouraged. He uh, couldn't understand it. Um, he asked me a couple of times, you know, what, you know, what happened? Why didn't they, why didn't they believe me? Why didn't, you know, and I, you know, I tried to explain to him that, uh, uh, I can't, I, that I couldn't, I couldn't tell him that, that, uh, uh that in, in our, our opinion, we believed in him and continue to believe in him. And that I told him that basically this is a chapter of your life that's closed. Close it up and get on and with your life. Uh, go back to school, play your sports, and uh, and uh, and be a, be a good person. Be somebody. And he will because that's, he's that kind of person. Is there any doubt in your mind after talking to this boy uh, that Michael Jackson did not molest him? There never has been from the very first time I met him. Well, I was shocked. Dr. Katz, whose interview with the Arvizo children led to a mandatory report on suspicions of child molestation, set the case in motion. I thought the evidence was overwhelming. I think that unfortunately, because the mother had the child welfare fraud claims that they didn't like mom. And I think even in post-interviews, some of them say they didn't like, they didn't trust mom. But, you know, mom wasn't the issue for me. I trusted those kids, and I do believe, I still believe that those children were credible. Um, so I was disappointed that they weren't believed. And I think that, unfortunately, when children aren't believed or when victims aren't believed, it causes other victims not to want to accuse anybody. So in the child abuse business, not the Me Too generation, but the child abuse business, those kinds of backlashes, they cause a backlash of people saying, why should I testify? Why should I tell anybody? I become a victim twice. I, I, I'm victimized as an abused victim, and now I'm victimized, told I'm a liar. Those kids were told they were liars. Gavin Arvizo was a liar. That's what the end product was. Reporter Diane Diamond. This was a really damaged family. And then Gavin gets cancer. And... In some respects, Janet Arvizo had more guts than Evan Chandler. She said to the cops after they interviewed her son and they came out and they said, Mrs. Arvizo, we believe your son. She said, I want some justice. I want to go to trial. Well, that's more than Evan Chandler ever did. This is a woman who took her son to the authorities and said, I think something wrong happened. I watched what happened to the uh, to the Chandler family. I mean, fans came from all over the world and, and sat on their front lawn and defecated and threw it at their front door and blared loud music in the middle of the night and, and threatened them. And Janet Arvizo was told all this. 
know, the media is going to come down on your head if we go ahead and do this. And she said, I want justice. I mean, I know Jackson was acquitted at that trial, but if this was really a money-grubbing family, they could have filed a civil suit, and they never did it. So I've got to say, like, they could have chosen to not have the mom testify at all. Yeah, I don't know so much if they could have avoided the mom testifying, but having all these other charges benefited them in some ways, but it also hurt them. And Tom Snedden, I found out, actually reached out to another lawyer to try the case. Oh, who? Larry Feldman. What? You're kidding. No. According to one source, Snedden went down to L.A., took Feldman to lunch, and said he wanted to deputize him to be the lead prosecutor. Feldman said, according to the source, that he would do it on the following conditions. That they charge Michael Jackson on one single count of child molestation, that there's no talking to the press, and that everything is handled by filing motions, much like Feldman did in the Chandler case, if you recall. But Snedden wouldn't do it. And Feldman told Snedden if he went ahead with all the conspiracy charges, he was going to lose. Whoa. Well, wow. So did you like corroborate this with anybody? Well, I ran it by prosecutor Ron Zonin. You know, I remember talking to Snedden about that. And, and uh, he, he, was, he was very impressed with Larry Feldman, thought he was a very capable lawyer. And Feldman knew a lot about the prior case, the 1993 case. And we were struggling to get Chandler to come and testify. And I think that Snedden felt that if Feldman were on the team, that it might convince Chandler to come testify. It was nothing more than, I think, a single conversation. Both of us understood that Feldman is more the witness than the lawyer. And um, I mean, if he wasn't a witness and wouldn't be a witness, I would have been in all in favor of deputizing him and bringing him in as another prosecutor. But he was a witness, and we were never going to get past the conflict issue. And Tom knew that. I think this was just kind of, you know, us chatting about it. I asked Zonin if perhaps the conspiracy charges complicated the case too much and distracted from the molestation charges. Well, it, we, we didn't lose because of doing that. That wasn't the problem. We lost because we had to deal with uh, Janet Arvizo, and she was impossible. Um, that's why we lost. The, the, the conspiracy allegations allowed us to get in a lot of other evidence that wouldn't have otherwise come in, such as Jackson's people buying them one-way tickets to, to, to Brazil, getting visas for them, checking the kids out of school, all of those things. They were not done by Jackson. They were done by Jackson's cohorts. And the only way that we would have gotten that into evidence is through the use of a conspiracy theory. So acting in furtherance of a conspiracy, you can involve co-conspirators doing that. And that assured us that that evidence would come before the jury. Now, that wasn't the issue, the reason that we lost it. The reason we lost it is an international superstar, and we had a crazy mother who presents as crazy. So, I mean, it was a problem. What happened to all the unindicted co-conspirators? They were not going to be witnesses. They weren't going to help us. All they were going to do is deny everything. And, um, and, and they weren't going to help them um, because if they took the witness stand, uh, then they would eventually be grilled about, you know, pulling them out of the country and moving them to Brazil and all that other stuff. They ended up simply not testifying because um, they were too unpredictable. 
I think the mistake that we made is we should have pulled all of them in front of the grand jury, every fucking one of them. Everyone who worked at Neverland close with Michael Jackson, we should have taken our time. We should have let the grand jury go another month longer. Tom was eager um, to, he was concerned. He was, he was anxious about the, the, um, the accusations from the press that, that we're taking so long because we don't have anything and we're desperate. And he was concerned about that appearance. And, and I kept saying, slow this down. I mean, it was a real mistake that we made in doing that. And even if they took the fifth, that would have neutralized them in trial. We should have forced them to do it, forced them to take the fifth, or forced them to answer questions. We just were spread too thin. So we decided to cut the, the grand jury hearing short and not get to any of them. And I thought that was a mistake. Correspondent Rita Cosby again from her interview with District Attorney Tom Snedden on MSNBC. Are you sad, sir, as your term is ending, um, that this is maybe the last, well, no, this may be the last, you know, huge case. You're certainly never going to have a case like this with a year and a half left in your term. You sad this is the way you're going out? No, I, 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 I just don't think you people understand who I am. And who I am is that, that I tell the, the, the kids that I've coached and I tell my kids that I've raised that if you do the best job that you can possibly do, and you do it for the right reasons, whether you win or whether you lose is unimportant. The question is, can you walk off the field at the end of the game with your chin up and say, I gave it my all, and I played fair and square, and I did the right thing? If you've done that, you've got nothing to apologize for, nothing to put your head down about. And I'm proud of the, my office. I'm proud of the people who participated. I'm proud of the sheriff's department. And if anybody thinks that because we lost this case that I'm going to walk around in a sackcloth with my chin down around my knees is crazy, because I'm not. I asked Jackson attorney Thomas Mesro if he celebrated the night of the jury's verdict. He said no. The night of the verdicts, I went to bed early. I had to get up to do some interviews on all the morning shows. So while other people were celebrating the night of the verdict, I went back, uh, didn't drink alcohol, uh, woke up the next morning at 2.30 to get ready to be taken from one studio to another. Uh, I felt good. I wasn't hungover. And uh, that's the way I conducted myself. Do you think it would have been a hindrance to the defense or a help to the defense if the trial was televised? Or do you think it wouldn't have mattered, the public seeing your performance? I wouldn't change a fleck of dust on the table in the courtroom because we got everything we wanted. We got 14 not guilty verdicts. We got 10 felony counts and four misdemeanor counts, all not guilty. You can't do better than that. Um, I think, you know, it was the judge on his own motion who instructed the jury that if you acquit on any of the last four felony counts, you can consider what is called a lesser included misdemeanor count. And you may convict him on that if you want to. I think he did that to throw the prosecution a life raft. Because the way the media was behaving, if Michael had been convicted of one misdemeanor count, the headlines would have been Michael Jackson guilty, guarantee you. They couldn't even get convictions on the four misdemeanor counts. So this was a real grand slam for Michael Jackson. This was vindication. You can't be vindicated more in a courtroom than he was. Following the trial, Aphrodite Jones, who had been reporting on the case throughout with a slant toward Jackson's guilt, said she had a change of heart after the verdict. After the non-guilty verdicts, I, I had an epiphany. 
and I realized the emperor had no clothes, meaning Tom Sneddon. And I realized that I had been played, like the rest of the media, by Sneddon and his prosecutorial team, and that really they didn't have the evidence to convict Michael Jackson. This wasn't a case of the jury being starstruck because they did a press conference immediately following the verdict. And so once I heard all that, I realized, geez, you know what? I was wrong, and these fans were right, and I need to go and make some kind of amends. And I went to Neverland. I went to the gates. They were there. There were wreaths put up. Um, Michael had already, you know, passed by the gates and was up in his property. And I sat and talked to the fans, and they were so angry at me, and they were so not believing a word I was saying. And one of them called me a whore, and it just, it was very, it was a very ugly scene. But at one point, somebody realized, somebody realized that I meant what I was saying, and you know, basically gave me a hug and said, you know, thank you for, you know, coming up here and and you know, acknowledging us because you know the fans were made fun of by the media the entire trial. In footage with an associated press watermark still available on YouTube, outside the gates of Neverland, hundreds of fans gathered to cheer support as Patriarch Joseph Jackson came out to show his gratitude to them and say a few words about his son's detractors. take all our fans for the support they gave us, you know. Diane Diamond and Nancy Grace was not good to us at all. Following the acquittal, the Symphony of International Press packed up and left town. There there was a story about several people, several anchors had affairs there and fell in love (laughs) and there was a runaway bride story. I wonder if you can elaborate on that briefly. I, um, will you forgive me if I don't want to? It, it falls into the, into the heading of gossip. Yes, it's true. Media pool coordinator Peter Shapelin. There were a number of reporters who were there for so many months that it became, there became friendships, there became some romances. There was even one reporter who referred to the whole experience as summer camp. It was just like being at summer camp. There were a couple of folk in the media who created a website called eatmj.com, which listed all of the restaurants and their menus and what kind of wait times you might expect. Uh, Again, this was done for the media, uh, the culinary side of the media. Uh, There there was a community that formed. And as as part of any community, there are going to be a whole range of experiences, good and bad, um, that, that, just simply, that just simply happened. Um, while the pool knew of many of these, the pool does not speak. Do you think Jackson was innocent? It's a great question. Thankfully, I wasn't on the jury. I thought that the case, I thought that they proved that Jackson was a predator. I'm not sure they proved that he was guilty of this case. I'm just not sure that the witnesses who testified about what allegedly happened or didn't happen were so convincing as to make it just irrefutable that he was that he was guilty. I thought that the case proved that he was a predator, and I thought that ultimately Santa Barbara 
won the trial. Now you're sort of pausing. What do I mean by that? Santa Barbara lost in the courtroom, but they rid themselves of the problem. Michael left. And with that left the embarrassment and the ongoing problem that stemmed from 93 through the middle to 2005, whatever. It was gone. When he left, it ended. So in that sense, I've always thought that Santa Barbara won. They maybe didn't get him to, to the prison door, but they got him out of their county. They made him go away. And that's what they wanted most of all. After the trial, according to AP reporter Linda Deutsch, Jackson phoned her to thank her for her coverage from the courtroom. This was much like the event a decade before, where Deutsch received a similar phone call from another celebrity, O.J. Simpson, following his acquittal by a Los Angeles jury. And it was like history repeating itself. Uh, Michael called me from Bahrain. Uh, It had been set up by his publicist, who I knew, and she said, Michael would like to talk to you. Oddly enough, again, I was in New Jersey. It was so weird. I was at the same house. And so the phone rang, and it was the prince who was hosting him at his palace. And he said, uh, Michael Jackson would like to speak with you. And he got on the phone, and he said, I'm calling to thank you for being fair to me. So few people were during the trial. And then he was going to hang up, and I was panicked because I had to do a story on this, obviously. And I said uh, to him, you know, what are you doing now? And it turned out he was doing a... Um, a, a recording, he was recording an album he hoped would be for the benefit of the survivors of Katrina. And um, and I said to him, well, you know, I saw you every day at the trial. What was it like for you? And he said, it was the worst experience of my entire life. And I believe it was. I asked Prosecutor Ron Zonin if he believed that after the trial, Michael Jackson continued to molest children? I don't know. Um, He moved to Bahrain. Um, I have no idea what he did. Um, I would think that he would be under a lot of attention wherever he went. I know that, I mean, I would have been fairly confident that eventually he would have if he had the opportunity to. But when you have that kind of international attention like that, it may be challenging to do it. I don't know what he did or didn't do in Bahrain. When he put Neverland on on the market, you know, all of us sat and said, well, he's going to be somebody else's problem, um, for which we had some amount of gratitude. But on the other hand, we knew him. We knew what he did. And we knew what to look for when kids start showing up at his house, small children staying there weeks at a time. Um, and somewhere else they may not look for that or they may not know what to look for or they may be bedoozled by his celebrity and fame. Whether bedoozled, bamboozled, hoodwinked, or flim-flammed by Jackson's celebrity or not, the jurors chose to vote in favor that the charges against him were not proven beyond a reasonable doubt. For Jackson, his family, and his fans, the acquittals were an emotional relief and a rallying cry for his complete vindication from the allegations that had marred his life over the previous decade. Yet still... A dark shadow from the allegations haunted the singer as he, and many who came to support him, left the small town of Santa Maria, north of the mountains, never to return. 
at the very end of the trial, my colleague from Court TV was flying home, Savannah Guthrie, who's now on the Today Show. She was flying home to New York. Reporter Diane Diamond recalled to me a story that appeared in her book on the Jackson cases, Be Careful Who You Love. And June Chandler happened to be on the same flight. And they didn't talk during the flight, but at the end, um, uh, when they were at the baggage carousel, she, uh, Savannah, went over and introduced herself and they had a little small talk. And then she finally said, what did you think of the jury's decision? She simply said, he will do it again. And that's a quote. He will do it again. Telephone Stories is presented by Luminary Media and Ninth Planet Audio. It's written and produced by me, Brandon Ogborn, and produced by Omar Crook. Our show is edited and mixed by Ross Morgan. Our story editor is Jim Newton, with research and fact-checking by Nona Yates. Jessica Grimulia is our music supervisor. Seth Weiss is our recording engineer. Our associate producer is Tess Ryan and production assistance comes from Namir Kalik. John Ahern composed our original music, and our cover art is by Jacob Sanders. If you have questions or comments on the show, or want to shower us with praise, email feedback at telephonestoriespod.com. Richard Wagner. <laughs> <laughs>